Well, welcome all you guys back here to the studio of Gangland Wire. This is Gary Jenkins, retired Kansas City, Missouri police intelligence detective turn radio show host, or in this case, podcast host. And I really appreciate y'all listening. And I have a pretty interesting story about the Providence, Rhode Island, Patriarcha mob or a mob associate guy named Louis the Coin Colavecchio. And he was right next to Patriarcha. I read this book it's called You Think It Was More. And this guy was a master thief, a master criminal. He could counterfeit anything. It's just, it's a crazy story, I think. And it's really well written by our guest here, Andy T-Ball. And we have Jerry Longo, retired from the Connecticut State Police, who actually arrested Louis the Coin at the end. So we'll get to hear about that and the relationship he developed with this guy. Because all these kinds of really good criminals, they always have really good personalities, I've noticed. You ever notice that, Jerry? (laughs) Huge personalities. I mean, they're good. I tell you, this book, it sounds interesting. I haven't really got a chance to read it all, but I read enough of it to make notes that it's got some great stories in it about the Rhode Island mob. Here's what an assistant U.S. attorney in New York said about it. The Rhode Island mob and the eponymous Patriarcha family have had many chronicles, but none has captured it better than Andy Tebow in the Louis the Coin memoir. Throw in a heavy mix of good fellas, and you have a book that will take its rightful place in mob lore. So if you like books about mob lore and firsthand stories, you need to get You thought it was more, and I'll have links in the show notes. So having said all that, let's get started. Andy, you want to get started with how'd you get into this story? Well, it's kind of funny. Jerry and I have been colleagues and became friends over many years. We worked a lot of events together. I don't even remember when. It was probably more than 20 years ago. I learned about Jerry's work on this case, and he had heard about an overflow of slot machine tokens at casinos throughout the country, actually. But Mohegan Sun, Foxwoods, Atlantic City, Las Vegas. And and as Jerry would like to say, they're not rabbits. Where are the extra ones coming from? So Jerry can tell you how they tested them with microscopes. And uh, I only learned about Louie after Jerry arrested him. And with, I think Jerry doesn't mind me saying this now, with his great help, we published a column in the Connecticut Law Tribune. And sometime later, I get a call from Louie because his wife had read about it online. And he said he had a manuscript. So he came to my house in Connecticut with his then wife. And we talked and Over a period of maybe eight or 10 years, I worked on it with another friend of ours, Franz Dusky and Jerry, and we kind of got the manuscript together. We got it published, and a firm out of Las Vegas, Histria Books, H-I-S-T-R-I-A, bought the rights, and they're publishing an updated version that includes a history of organized crime in Rhode Island by Joe Broadmeadow retired of Providence, East Providence PD, Louis sentencing report, which documents and affirms everything we have in the book with footnotes. And the pre-order links are out now, but it won't hit the street or Kindle till sometime next June, I believe. 
Okay, great. I look forward to that, to seeing that whole book. And that Joe Broadmeadow, I, I interviewed him and he knows his stuff. And I read you included some of that in the materials you gave me. That's a really good overview of the history of the Patriarcha family in Providence, Rhode Island mob. That's a heck of a mob. So, Jerry, when you first got onto this, were you working intelligence or what were you working with the state police or yeah. casino enforcement? Well, I was in a Bureau of Criminal Investigations, BCI, as you know, in most states are using the, the criminal investigative. This is the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, GBI, yeah. CB. Connecticut has their own, B, what we call a BCI. And when the casinos opened, we branched out and, and created a casino unit. And so I was in there and we didn't try to reinvent the wheel. We went to Las Vegas and we went to Atlantic City to learn from the law enforcement guys there how to be casino cops. We were troopers. We were doing all kinds of crazy things. You know, I was an accident reconstructionist. I did all kinds of nutty things in my career, as I'm sure you did. And so I was trying to learn to find things. I went to UNLV to take courses on how to investigate company, all the background stuff, really getting into it. But I developed a great friendship with a guy named Jimmy Flammer in New Jersey. He was a trooper in New Jersey, a detective. And Jimmy called me one day and said, I'm going to send you an envelope. I said, well, okay. I just hope it's not drugs or a gun or something. You know? <laughs> and I get this, this envelope and two tokens fell out from Caesars. And he says, which one's fake in the note? I says, I don't know. I call him. He said, we'll find out. So I took it to the slot techs at the casinos and they weighed them and they measured them and they did all kinds of tests on them and they tried running them through machines and whatever. And they came back and said, they're identical. And I called Jimmy. I said, they're identical. He said, no, they're not. They're One's fake and one's real. And if you look, I made a little ding mark on one. That, that's the fake one. I went, it doesn't make any sense. So we started developing methods between New Jersey and Connecticut on how to catch this guy who was bringing these fakes in. My approach to it was that there's only so many $100 slot tokens in a casino. So if we were able to manage an inventory system that would do it every day or every other day, when we saw a spike in coins, we knew he was there. We, Rather than reviewing 24 hours of tape a day for six weeks, which as you, I don't know if you've ever sat in a building and with a pair of binoculars for a week or a month yeah. or is it, that's crazy. You'll go insane doing that. So all of a sudden we'd get a spike of a hundred tokens on a Saturday. So that meant they were in there on a Friday gaming day or whatever it was. And we reviewed the hundred dollar machines and we would see different people playing. But we always kind of saw the same woman. That was his girlfriend at the time. <laughs> so she never changed. He wore disguises. He wore beards and wigs and all that stuff. But she never changed. So we started narrowing in on New Jersey and Connecticut collaborated. And then we started working more heavily on catching him live, which they did in New Jersey. We didn't get him live in Connecticut. I did it all through the warrant process. But I also involved the, the Secret Service. Because it was a counterfeiting, something worth something of value. Like mm. the Secret Service does credit cards, they do money, they do, they also do things like that, coins or tokens. Mm. So I had my local agent involved and a whole bunch of states started just raining warrants down on this guy. And when he was confronted in New Jersey live with coins in a trunk and disguises, I think he might have had a, Andy, did he have a gun? I think he had a gun in a trunk too, I think. I believe he did, yes. I think he did, yeah. So it was pretty serious. Uh, once I got the warrant, I called him up for an interview. 
And he was being represented by the former, I think, attorney general of the state of Rhode Island or the head prosecutor. And yeah, he said, nah. yeah. So he said, come on in for an interview. And he goes, nah. He says, I don't like the way they treated me in New Jersey. And I said, this ain't Jersey. <laughs> right? I don't care what exit you live on. This is Connecticut. We're more polite here. Show up. Just talk to me. I got a warrant for you. We'll make an appointment. So he goes, really? I go, yeah. What day you want to get arrested? I don't give a shit. When just come and turn yourself in. So I went to a bakery in Hartford and I got some cannoli and I got some espresso and I got some biscotti and I laid out a little thing on the table. A lawyer comes in like with his dukes up and I said, no, nah, this ain't like that. I just want to talk. And we talked for like an hour. And it leaked out to the press. I don't know who did this at the barracks, but there was a bunch of press. I let them go get the car. We went, took them out back. They treated them like a gentleman. Yeah. And we arrested them for all of that, all those things that we arrested them for. But the one footnote I would make is that when we did the raid at his house, we found evidence that he had counterfeited tokens in about 35 different casinos, including many in Las Vegas. And he would mail them from Rhode Island to Vegas and pick them up at a P.O. box. Not one casino in Vegas ever acknowledged that they were hit by those things. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't do it. And so I went into the corporate security, saw some corporate security guys in Vegas, the guys that work for Steve Wynn and, and things like that. And they were all retired agents and FBI agents. And, stuff. and I asked them, I said, why would they deny this? And he said, because they got hit a couple of years ago. And they were pretty much all put out that if this ever happened again, a lot of guys were going to lose their jobs. So uh, Vegas denied yeah. any involvement with this whole thing, even though we had evidence back in Connecticut of pieces of the molds, the dyes, everything for different casinos. They just said, nah, they just never really made them out here. We're not involved. So it was just kind of a strange turn of events. But we got arrested in Rhode Island and Connecticut and New Jersey. And then we became friends afterwards. But Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, guys, now I was reading your manuscript and he connects back to Patriarca and Federal Hill and the whole Providence, Rhode Island mob. Now, can you give me a little bit of that history and how he connected to them? How close was he? He wasn't a made guy, it doesn't look like, in that family. He never but. was a made guy. However, as Joe Broadmeadow puts it, Louis the Coin, though not a made man, was considered such a great talent. He was part of the inner circle of the Providence office. And I, I just want to state clearly that when you say you thought it was more, that means you're from the Providence office, which helped him a lot when he was in jail. And the Providence office is Raymond Patriarca. One of the things that happened was, obviously, you make an arrest. And when you do a massive raid, again, Gary, you know about this stuff. Yeah. Usually the rookie gets to be the evidence guy making all the tags for all the stuff you're seizing. Only thing is, we got there and we needed about a dozen of those guys because we filled up a couple of tractor trailer trucks with the evidence that we had. We had to rent forklifts and, and all kinds of crazy things because he had the printing presses and he had barrels full of materials and stuff. Turned into a nightmare. But I got lucky. Uh, they sent me out for sandwiches. And when I got back, all the crappy jobs had been taken. So I got to do the, the Rolodex, his Rolodex off his desk. Oh. And in there were... The Patriarcha names and the uh, Monocchio. Baby Shank. Baby Shank, yeah. And that's basically who was running it in the organization at the time. Junior was out in Illinois. I think he was in Marion. He was locked up because I flew out there to interview him. 
And he granted me an interview at the federal prison. And when I got there, I was about to open the door. And he goes, nah, I'm just screwing with you. I don't want to talk to you. Nah. So he made me fly all the way out to <laughs> Indiana or other places. And then I just went home. Says I had nothing. I just, you know, I went out for dinner and then I went home. He was just screwing me. He, he yeah. gave me an interview and maybe fly all the way out there, but he wasn't going to tell me anything. And that was Raymond Patriarca Jr., right? Junior. Yeah. yeah. That was Junior. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, Louis started at Sherwood Manufacturing, I think, before he went to college. So he would take field trips to Boston and sell fake cashmere sweaters. That would shrink to nothing if you washed them. <laughs> it sold to Irish mobsters and then get out of town. He's a bold guy. Yeah. I read that in the book. He also he counterfeited some money early on. I mean, this guy started out, he had one of these insurance scams where guys would get these insurance policies that'll pay you forever day that you're sick or day you're in the hospital or something. And he sold a bunch <laughs> of those and they were collecting money off of those. He had one scam after another and it was all around that Providence Hill area in this S&S bar that he hung out in. Can you talk about that relationship a little bit? Oh, he would just hang out there. And in the book, he lists like four or five hitmen who were there at the time. And he tells the stories of the demise of some of them. A couple were just having relationships they weren't supposed to have with other mobsters, wives or girlfriends. And then one got killed because of that, and then another one got killed because he thought he was too big. But Louis in the room with all of these guys. It should be noted that he earned a degree in business administration from Providence College. While he was in prison, no doubt. No, no. 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 No, during his oh, really? somewhat legitimate life. He was a young man. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, he went to college to honor his father. Yeah. One of those hit guys was a guy named Pasquale Galia, and he was a hitter for that mob. You know, he was a, had some importance because he was one of the pallbearers at Patriarcha Sr.'s funeral, so he oh, wow. took some pictures. And he showed up at Foxwoods. He was playing poker, and I was with one of the assistant commandants of the Rhode Island State Police, and who later went on to some fame and fortune or whatever and he said hey do you know who that guy is with the blue blazer with the carnation i go come on it's a movie right i said he's got the slick back hair he's got the whole nine yards you can smell <laughs> the olive oil 10 feet away and i said no who is he? he goes he's a killer for the patriarchal crime family so i says well let me go talk to him he goes no let me talk to him <laughs> so this guy walked over he patted him on the back he says hey patsy did you kill anybody lately and the guy turned around and goes you want me to leave, right? I go, I don't, but he does. And I just went, <laughs> took my nod, nodded my head up and down. And he got up and left. And we never saw him again. You always have to appreciate so, those mob guys. They understand the rules. <laughs> they know sure. the rules of the game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I got to say, before I forget, I actually helped him with one of his scams. And I did it inadvertently. Oh, these guys. When we, be when we became friends... No, that's not a criminal thing. Oh, I see. He asked me, he asked me, I sent him some cookies for Christmas when he was in Fort Dix, when he was in prison. And he called me back on the prison thing. You know, do you accept this call and all that? I go, yeah. And he goes, hey, can you get any more of those cookies? I'm getting eight bucks a piece for them. <laughs> and I said, no. I said, they were, 
they're not they weren't for sale to, you know just, just enjoy them because no 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 i sold Hold them all. Give me some more. No, Louis, I can't. I can't do that. I can't do that. Jerry, what you should have done then is then say, "Well, you got to give me a little taste here. Give yeah. me a piece of the action." That's his world. Give me a little. Yeah, give, give me two bucks back. Sure. He understands that. Yeah, that guy, he was a consummate, consummate criminal, it seemed to me like, constantly looking for scams. And I guess the mob, the Patriarca family, probably, they must have got a little taste of that in some ways. I don't know. Did that ever come out, how they were getting a piece of that action? Or were they doing anything for him at all, or just letting him hang around because he was an interesting, fun guy? Well, he bought a a press in Italy, a 150-ton press that was... You used them into coins, and he didn't buy that. <laughs> Somebody else bought I that. See. So okay, I they financed that operation. I got to imagine they probably got the lion's share of the whatever profits there were. Yeah. So, you know. but Jerry estimated it was up to four million, right? Yeah, I mean that's just based on looking in the barrels, the garbage, to see how many coins had been minted or printed, and then guesstimating. Yeah. Based on if you played a hundred dollar slot machine for a half an hour free, what would you make in profit? And we were trying to do all these algorithms and trying to figure out what it was, but it was in the millions. It was definitely in the millions because if you could play a slot machine for free all day long, you're going to make some money. So interesting. Yeah. Because like a lot of them, they've taken the whole coin thing out of it and you just stick a credit card in there and you get the ticket and you take the ticket over to the but they still have, I think they still have some coin operated or check operated machines. And so there was a difference. Did he have to search to find those check operated machines or token operated machines? All of our machines at the time were. Oh, okay. And so why didn't he just take a big handful of them and go over and go to the cage and just get cash back for them? Did he want to turn them and not hand a, them somebody directly or? This wasn't a job for him. This was a sport. Ah, interesting. Yeah. He wanted to play. He just wanted to play for me. Remember, when you're out there playing, you're also getting free room. You're oh. getting comps. You're getting limousines, all that stuff. So, yeah. we don't. Yeah. We used to have fun showing all the certified letters he got from around the country, banning him from casinos. <laughs> yeah. And then one night, I went to the Twin River Casino in Rhode Island. And with some friends to see the fights, and we get invited to the VIP room by Louis. So I guess <laughs> I guess he wasn't got, banned from there. Still got some pull in those casinos because it looked like he was a big player, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what was he a tool and die maker? Was he creating those molds? Was he? He was a metallurgist. He okay. was like a reverse engineer. He was a jeweler. He did orthotics. He made uh, fake statues of, was it David's Pieta? Yeah, I saw that. The New York World's Fair. and He got him blessed by a phony priest and said they were certified (laughs) by the Vatican. (laughs) Yeah, I was remember reading that about this Dean Sales. It must have been like a smorgasbord or a merchandise mart of stolen property, jewelry, and those statues and anything you could think of, counterfeit watches and counterfeit clothes and all that, it must have been something. He was once a Lamborghini dealer in Rhode Island. (laughs) 
Oh yeah, I read about those sports cars he was making. He was making fake sports cars too, and selling them for a lot of money. It yeah. was crazy <laughs> getting a pony. One of the things that he did with that impressed me was he crushed up some actual tokens and sent them out for metallurgical testing to uh-huh. see what the composite materials were made of. And we were very deep into the investigation about to slam it closed. And we found out that the place he was buying most of his stock from was about a quarter of a mile from my back door in my office. Huh. It was in Wallingford, Connecticut. <laughs> I could see we're on a hill. I could almost see the place where he was buying the material. So yeah, it was it was a good one. But he you had to do the right weight, the right color, the right yeah. combination of materials. Yeah. There wasn't a very sophisticated system to the slot machines back then, but they did go through a tester. The, when the coins go through, there's a coin tester there that kind of shoots a little, I think it shoots a little jolt of electricity in it to see right. if, it, if it's authentic, if it's going through the right way. I mean, he had his own testers right. at his house, and he would test the materials using all that equipment that's in a slot machine. So I guess that begs the question, how did the casino people ever figure it out? I mean, I could see where that could go on for years. I think it did go on for years. I think that <laughs> if New Jersey hadn't called me, we probably would have got creamed in Connecticut, like a lot more than we did. So how did they figure it out? Somebody rat him out and then they, or they started looking for him. And if they're the same exact die, the right. same well, what metal. Happened, what happened was it, an extended audit at a casino in New Jersey said they went to party A and said, hey, Joe, we're supposed to have $5,000 tokens. He goes, yeah, so what? He goes, we have 13000 He goes, did you order any? Oh, he goes, no. I see. The we whole... didn't order any. I got you now. Yeah, the inventory. Then they said, well, check the fives. They said, well, we're supposed to have 20,000 fives. He goes, we got 32,000 fives. So they built up over a long period of time. He was hitting the same places over and over again. And they were able to determine after surveillance and everything else that they would clean machines out completely. And then he would put coins in. And if you hit something and the machine was empty, it, it calls a slot attendant. And they go and they, you know, we're saying that a million times, you poured a bag of coins in there to fill it back up. Yeah. But they were doing that so that they suspected that those tokens that they were getting were counterfeit. And when they were kind of certain that they did, that's when they sent me one and they were kind of on the trail already. But I'll tell you what, to prove it, I had to take his die where he was minting our coins, send them to the place where we had the coins minted and they minted coins. And then they used his dies and minted coins. And then they had their geniuses look at it and say, this is off by a hair. I see. This is off by hair. And we had to sit in the basement of the casino with 12 microscopes looking. We had charts up on the wall that were like three feet across these big charts. Look at the end of the nose comes to a point instead of round it. Look yeah. for this. Look at this. This letter is a skew or whatever is by a hair. And that's what we were looking for to pull the stock uh, out of the inventory. Yeah. It'd be a little bit like a bullet comparing bullets. Right. Find a different little striation, just something that's different. Something's exactly the same. And right. But that's double microscope thing. Sure. Wow. But that's having somebody hand you 30,000 bullets and say, here, <laughs> yeah, I, I can yeah. see. So Great. the lost, the casino, I mean, I guess he was, I don't know. I have a hard time getting my mind around this. Maybe you can. Yeah, uh, you don't know. Nobody will ever know. (laughs) First off, 
20 what was the, the crime, I guess? <laughs> a counterfeiting. I understand counterfeiting, yeah. but somebody has yeah. to be a victim. And right. how are they a victim? Like you steal something from me, I'm the victim. Like you use right. a credit card, the credit card company's a victim exactly. many times. So they're the exact victim. So the casino's the victim, but what did they lose? Right. So the charges came down federally to conspiracy and the racketeering type charges that it was an ongoing criminal enterprise. Each state, we had to prove that there was a loss, even if it was a couple of hundred dollars okay. in each casino. And then obviously with the raid, with a warrant, when you find a manufacturing plant, which has the remnants of tokens from 30 or 40 casinos, the conspiracy all got locked up together. So I think he did light time for what, you know, what he did. He only, I think he only did six Maybe six years. He did two years at Fort Dix. Out of six. I think it was a six-year, maybe a six-year. Right. Maybe two out of six or seven. Yeah. Yeah. And when he went there, he was greeted by an Army vet. And uh, the guy said to him, you thought it was more. That's how he greeted (laughs) him. And then Louis ultimately moved into a nice accommodation with some guys with the pizza connection. Uh, and there were stage brawls in the dining area to distract the guards. And that's when they would steal the best food from the kitchen. <laughs> he also used to customize the glasses. Oh, right. The mob guys. He would do custom glass jobs, like put rhinestones in them or something like that, or oh, initials. Really? Or <laughs> oh, yeah. And then I was talking one night, because I used to call him randomly. I would say, where, where are you? And he goes, Ohio. I go, what are you doing? He goes, nothing. Why the hell would a guy from Rhode Island go to Ohio for nothing? Yeah. So anyway, I said, what are you up to these days? He goes, you know how much money I made on that copy machine at that prison? I said, (laughs) what are you talking about? He goes, I didn't tell you about that. I said, what? He goes, me and two of the guards and some whatever, we would unplug the copy machine and any of the prisoners wanted to use it. They had to give us a couple cigarettes. (laughs) And then we'd plug it back in. He had a copy machine business on the side <laughs> he was into everything <laughs> god he was just the consummate scammer wasn't he a constant consummate guy that's looking for the angle and uh, it should have been you thought it was more uh I, I guess trying to i still can't i'm wrapping my mind around this crime of the counterfeit coins right i understand counterfeit money you go buy goods or mainly what they do is they go in and they use a $50 bill and then get $40 and change back in good money. I understand that. Or you have a dope guy that'll take $50,000 and counterfeit hundreds and buy dope with it. I understand that. But the counterfeit coins, he's playing them. He was right. winning. But usually you put more in than you win in the end, I guess. I don't know. Did he ever calculate? How if he ever came out ahead and with their coins and then turned them in for money or? Well, yeah, it's all guesstimation. The fraud comes in with the same thing. And if you go up to a, a brand name soda machine and you put in a couple of electrical box knockouts and use them as slugs and take the soda, you just counterfeited something of value, whether it's a coupon for a store. If, if you get a free turkey, it's at some store yeah. and you print up 10 coupons and you go and you get 10 free turkeys, you really did a fraud. Now that's a very small thing. You're not going to go to jail for getting a free turkey, but 
What I'm saying is you're creating a thing that has value. Once it's established in a machine, you've made a contract with the state once you pull the handle that if you win, they pay you. And if you lose, they keep the money. Those are actually contractual things that are happening. Every time you do it, it's a contract, right? So that's why even here, I've had people win jackpots and they run because they're on parole or they owe their wife money or whatever it is, right? It's a contract with the state. Then you have the girlfriend sitting in the boyfriend's lap and she pulls the handle and wins a jackpot. It's his money. No, she won. (laughs) She committed the contract. She completed the contract with us. So it's in the fine details, I guess, that how the fraud happens. But there was tons, literally tons of evidence that he'd been doing it a long time and making money because how could you not when you're playing for free, basically? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, all the comps, everything that he got right. is part of the contract. Right. Is you oh, yeah. get that. Okay. I get it, but it's, I don't know how you explain that to a jury of his peers, but I guess somebody obviously did. I have to take my hat off to the prosecutor to explain that one. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what's he doing now? Is he still alive? Uh, he died a couple summers ago and the New York Times ran his obit. You miss him. He's just a funny guy to hang out with. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, well, he was a friend of mine. <laughs> it just it sounds weird, but he was. I know, I know. I've got a good friend today that we helped put in jail on a narcotics charge in 92. Mm-hmm. So I meet with him about every week because he's funny. And we talk the same language. You know, yeah. I know people exactly. that he knows pretty well. And I'm one of the few people he can talk to because he's straight now and talk right. about that stuff. And I will understand what he's talking about because he doesn't really want to go back and just chat up with some of his old buddies in life. So you're yeah. kind of the same way. I understand that. But, you know, after he got out, he did it again. And he was getting older and an investigator, a peer of mine from the other casino. I'm at Mohegan Sun. This other guy's at Foxwoods. We got a call from Rhode Island State Police that said, hey, Mr. Colavecchio is up to his old tricks again. And they said, what do we look for? Can we see a copy of your warrant? Because, you know, the body of the warrant, uh, determines what they'll let you take, what you're looking for. So all the boilerplate that we use for our warrants, for all these materials we gave to the Rhode Island State Police, evidently he asked some kid on the street to help him move some stuff, and the kid was an informant and mm-hmm. ratted him out. So they went and they raided the place. They took all his stuff, and the judge dismissed the case. He says, he didn't make anything yet. <laughs> so they got him too early. <laughs> so that went nowhere. But, yeah. And then he ultimately, right, Andy, before he died, he went away again for doing counterfeit money. Yeah, I mean, Louis was arrested many times, and he would always get probation. Even when he tested positive for cocaine at age 70, 70, he told the court, I only used it for sex. (laughs) But then he got caught cooking up 40 grand of hundreds in his apartment in Pawtucket. And he had to go to that place where Madoff is. And he was a nobody there, and he was in very, very bad health. I didn't realize how ill he was at the time. But he had everything that could go wrong with you. One last question, I guess. He was able to make these hundreds with all those security precautions that are on these bills today, good enough that they'd pass in some places? Man, that's good. I don't know about the quality, but that's what he did time for. Huh. Yeah. He got a compassionate release at the end. Did he? Let him go. Well, when he was dying, they didn't want him to die yeah. in 
prison, so they let him out yeah, two weeks not, before he died. Die on your own dime, huh? Exactly. <laughs> and a lot of those guys, are. we've got a mob guy here in Kansas City. They got one of those about a year ago, and he seems to be going strong. Actually, we've got two of them, <laughs> and they seem to be going strong today. So, <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. The name of the book is You Thought It Was More. Louis Colavecchio uh, wrote this, who is the guy who thought it was more. He was a consummate criminal connected to the patriarchate family in, in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, he has a hell of a story about counterfeiting the coins, the checks or the tokens you put into slot machines with Andy Thebalt and Jerry Longo is here who worked the case, retired from the Connecticut State Police. So guys, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about Louis the Coin. It's a heck of an interesting story and I'll have links to your book down in the show notes. Got any Thank last you. words? I was just going to say, if you're interested in law enforcement, I've got a state police museum in Meriden, Connecticut. And I've got one of the microscopes, I've got the tokens, I've got the fake chips, I've got the last, well, we used to take Polaroid shots of pictures. Remember taking Polaroids over Polaroids, that kind of stuff? Yeah. And I got a surveillance photo of him and his girlfriend, the last photo taken of him before he got arrested, and he autographed it for me, Louis de Coin. <laughs> so I've got that in the museum, too. So if you want to come see it, it's in Connecticut. Just look cool. us up. What city in Connecticut? It's in Meriden, Connecticut. Meriden. All right. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Jerry's got a nice exhibit there. And cool. we're like yeah. number 800 in line at the Mob Museum for consideration. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Moving up. All right. Andy, you got Thanks. any last words there for us? I've just been learning about your work on the skim and the various houses that you visited. So <laughs> I'm going to read up on that. All right. But for us, we've got some cool videos and links for pre orders at louisthecoinbook.com. There's a a video of Jerry telling how he misses Louie there. All right. We'll have that link in the show notes too. All right, guys, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been Thanks fun. Thanks so much. All Thank right. you. Hey guys, now don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles. So watch out for motorcycles when you're out there on the streets. And if you have a problem with PTSD and you've been in the service, go to the VA website. They've got a hotline just for PTSD. And if you got a problem with drugs or alcohol, you know, our friend, former Gambino soldier, Andy Ruggiano, is a drug and alcohol counselor, and he has a hotline on his website. So search around for Anthony Ruggiano, and you'll find it. He's got a YouTube channel, too. So thanks a lot, guys. And don't forget to like and subscribe and check us out next week. Thanks a lot.